On this edition of the Good Morning Hamilton podcast, Scott Radley sitting in for Rick Zamper today. We are talking about rage. Canadians are raging, it seems. At least there's a new rage index that we're going to be discussing. What does this mean and how angry are we and what are we mad at? I will be talking about the meeting between the Premier and the Prime Minister today about where that's going to be going. Art theft is on the menu. Uh, we're talking to a guy who's rode his bike all the way across Canada to raise money and attention on a particular illness. And we will be getting into Bill Briou and Steve Steos, sports, entertainment, lots of everything. Stick around. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. In Canada, it seems that we are raging a little bit. Maybe not raging like some places, but, you know, for a country that is known to be polite and easily appeased and happy by and large and... Yeah, there, there are, yeah, well, you've seen it. You saw what the, you saw what happened with Christopher Freeland the other day with the person screaming at her. You've seen it elsewhere. You see anger directed towards politicians and people we disagree with. And what is going on? Dan Arnold is with Polaris Strategic Insights that is behind the gate, the rage index. He joins us now. Dan, thanks for doing this today. Good morning. So you don't sound raging. That's good. I mean, that's a, that's a good start. <laughs> Uh, I'm, I'm many, in a good mood today, but I think I'm in the minority of Canadians based on our poll results. Well, you must be because it, it okay, let, let me ask about the word rage, first of all, before we get into some of these numbers. I mean, is it rage? Is it just discomfort? Is it uh, anger? Is it, well, what is the, I mean, is rage the best word for what people are feeling? You know, I think across most of the questions we asked right now, it would be more of a general frustration across the land. That seems to be where Canadians are at right now. Uh, you know, the incidence of very intense rage is still limited. Um, but the reason we're tracking this is because if those, if that frustration turns into rage over time, that's when we're going to see more incidents like what happened with Christopher Freeland or other, uh, you know, violent outbursts. We want to get a tabs on it now and then see if it actually gets worse over time uh because we don't want to obviously get to a situation where it becomes uh, intense rage for uh, for all canadians let me throw out a few of the numbers that you have found here uh and these are sort of broad because there's different levels there's very angry annoyed or moderately angry neutral or no emotion pleased or moderately happy very happy federal government 48 percent angry at the federal government Provincial government, 46% angry. The Canadian economy, 53% angry. Your own financial situation, only 32. I'm a little surprised. Uh, the types of changes happening in Canada, 55%. That's the second highest. And the latest stories in the news, 60%. Uh, for a lot of these, you are at or just over half of the country saying they are angry with stuff that's going on. That, that can't be a positive place to be for the country when you've got half the people who are angry or alienated or whatever word you want to apply here frustrated whatever no it isn't and i think uh you know there was this uh kind of hope i think at the start of the summer that like we're coming out of covid we're coming out of lockdowns this is going to be a great time everyone's going to be in a great mood um but you know just on the barbecue circuit this summer talking to friends and family everybody kind of has something to complain about be it uh, airport delays or the price of bacon at the grocery store or you name it so you know i think what actually has happened is that a lot of this frustration that has kind of bent up or pent up during the pandemic the last couple of years is sort of boiling over now people were willing to all rally behind the flag and say we're all in this together for uh for a year or two um because there was that kind of common cause of fighting covid but now that we're moving a bit out of that i think all this uh frustration is sort of bubbling over into uh many different areas uh including the ones you just mentioned 
one of the things that strikes me when you when with what's going on right now that may be a bit of a cause of this, and I, I I'd love to hear your thought on this one. Politicians uh, are the ones who are driving a lot of these changes that are frustrating people, but nobody seems to be willing to accept any responsibility. It's always pushing it on to someone else. The federal government blames the provincial government. Provincial blames the federal government. Um, people, you know, are mad. People make comments about other people, but then when someone criticizes back, they get upset. It, everyone is looking to deflect the blame. No one seems to be willing to stand up and accept much responsibility, which will frustrate everybody. Yeah, I think there's a, a cyclical nature to a lot of this with uh, people who are angry at other people makes those other people in return angry at them. We tested a few different uh, individual news stories as well, in addition to those uh, those six kind okay. of indicators you mentioned, uh, including uh, you know the Freedom Convoy uh, into Ottawa six six months ago, and that was obviously an example of people who were very angry and wanted to uh, vocalize their anger. Uh, but now you've got two thirds of Canadians who are angry about uh, that convoy, even all this time later. So you know one incident of anger and rage can in return make other people angry. So I do think. Uh, as you said, there is that risk of, uh, you know, whenever it starts blaming each other and lashing out, things can, can get worse over time. You point out uh, that these are not technically part of the rage index, but some of those things you mentioned, rate of inflation, 83%, angry gas prices, 79%, the trucker convoy, 64 delays at airports, 57 Canada's housing market, 55 uh, passport renewals, 45 which is probably that low only because most of the country hasn't had to go and renew their passport lately. If everybody had to every year, I'm guessing that would be a lot higher. But these are things that are everyday parts of life. And if 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 we're if we're this frustrated about everyday things, boy, as I say that 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 seems like it's something that's just going to continue to build unless there are some real solutions presented that people are willing to buy in with. Yeah, I think, and I think the challenge is that a lot of these issues are not things that have uh, easy solutions. Um, right. You know, there's very little that can be done to to change uh, inflation, um, even at the highest levels in the land. So, you know, I think the leaders uh, of the country, it's important that they understand where people are feeling frustrated, uh, that they are feeling that they understand where this anger is, because at least then you're in touch with uh, with your citizens. And maybe there are some things that can be done around the edges. But I think uh, ultimately, people just want to know that, uh, you know, the leaders in the country understand what they're going through more than anything else. And I think that helps uh, as much as any uh, concrete solutions in many cases. Dan, Arn, uh, by the way, is this this is the rage index? Is this going to work sort of like the uh, what do they call it, the Armageddon clock or whatever, where we're we're constantly like checking to make sure where we are compared to midnight? Is that how this is kind of going to go? Well, we'll have a graphic where uh, some guy's face gets redder and redder as it gets uh, <laughs> angrier and angrier. But we we are planning to update this every month uh, with uh, you know those core questions, but also things that people are just uh, frustrated about. So send your suggestions in. If there's a lot of feedback to your next segment about people who are angry about. Uh, the, the pumpkin spice latte is coming out too early. We can test on that too. But if there's uh, you know any other ideas or things that pop up in the news, we are definitely going to be testing those uh, as time goes by to see what it is that gets Canadians the, the most angry. Dan Arnold with Polaris Strategic Insights. Dan, thank you for the time today. Thanks. Uh, you can go to Polara, P-O-L-L-A-R-A, polara.com, and you can find the Rage Index and uh, see what people are mad at. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Prime Minister Trudeau meeting with Premier Doug Ford today at Queen's Park about what? Well, probably healthcare, medicine, that kind of thing. Uh, let me bring in Colin DeMello, Queen's Park Bureau Chief from Global News Toronto, and now a man safely away from the noise of his children. <laughs> Colin, how are you this morning? 
Well, I, I'm in a closet and the bedroom door is <laughs> locked because inevitably over like two years of a pandemic and the kids have decided there's no boundaries with dad. So they just come in whenever I'm on air. So It's like that interview with the guy in Korea a few years ago with his children and nanny and wife all breaking into the room at the same time. Oh, um, it's, ha- oh it's happened to me. It's happened to me. And it's the worst feeling ever. Well, <laughs> it's okay. If it ha- laugh out of it, if it happens here, we're fine, Colin. We, we'd be happy to have your kids on the air. Uh, what do we know about the meeting today? Everyone assumes it's going to be talking about health care. That, that seems like the most likely thing. Is that what we expect? Well, healthcare will likely be the number one agenda, at least for the province's perspective. I mean, the province and, and the premier has been pushing all year uh, for an increase in the Canada health transfer. So to kind of put this into context, I mean, the federal government obviously collects a lot of tax revenue. They transfer that money for health care to all of the provinces. Historically, that number has kind of been going, you know, down and down and down. It used to be a 50-50 uh, share, and now it's down to 22 percent uh, with some other caveats uh, in included in there as well. So right now, all the provinces get about $42 billion every year. The provinces want another roughly $30 billion uh, to help pay for the additional costs of healthcare. I mean, I think we've seen over the last couple of years just how important the healthcare system is and how vulnerable the healthcare system can be as well. Um, so that will be the number one topic. I mean, Premier Doug Ford recently held a, a meeting with other conservative premiers in Atlantic Canada, and it was the same topic about healthcare asking the federal government for more health care transfers. And, and, you know, they, they kind of walk a very fine line, right? They, they don't want to blame the federal government because they say they want to partner in the federal government. So this is not, even though, you know, it's a, it's a liberal pr- uh, prime minister and a progressive conservative premier, and they don't see eye to eye on a lot of issues, they tend to play nice with one another uh, because the premier knows, you know, you, you have to kind of... Um, you kind of have to sweeten the pot a little bit if you're going to be able to get more money out of the federal government. It would seem though, um, based on as your description, and a lot of people understand that the transfer payments have gone down over the years, it would seem like an easy argument to make for the provinces, wouldn't it? Politically to say, look, you've squeezed us now. We were at 50%. We're now down at 22. Time to start forking some more money over here. It would seem like that's a winner. Well, the provinces have been, you know, relatively united ever since Premier Ford got elected. Um, I'm not sure whether he was the catalyst for this or not, but it seems like all of the, the, the premiers in the territories seem to have kind of aligned their messaging. So whenever they have these, uh, you know, annual cough meetings, the Council of the Federation, where all the premiers get together, they'll all have one united request, and that's increase the, the Canada health transfers uh, from 22% to 35%. And Ontario says, listen, that would net us some $10 billion a year, and they could use that to build hospitals, hire staff, um, and really ease the current health care crisis. From the federal government's perspective, though, it seems to be the big sticking point might be, how is the money actually going to be spent? You know, in Ontario, as an example, the Ford government has basically given up about a billion dollars in revenue by giving people a, a, a refund on their license plate stickers, right? Uh, they're spending about $600 million, as an example, to give drivers a six-month break on uh, the, the Ontario portion of the gasoline tax. So you know, there are questions about the priorities of, of the Ontario government. I mean, could that you know, $1.6 billion that they've spent giving people back a tax break could that not have been spent on the healthcare sector, as an example? So from the federal government's perspective, they want specific parameters on how the money is spent. And the provinces say, no, don't 
you know, don't box us in. Let us spend it how we see fit. So it's a battle over control. It always kind of is a battle over control. You, you look at the, the recent child care, $10 a day child care negotiations, as an example. You know, the federal government put very strict parameters on exactly how the money was to be spent and what the outcomes were supposed to be. And, and that was, you know, the big sticking point with the, the Ford government. They said, you know, they wanted a little bit more flexibility in the deal. They wanted to make sure that they could spend the money how they saw fit and to, to recognize, you know, how, how Ontario's uh, child care system operates. Uh, but the federal government was you know, pretty uh, adamant about the fact that they had outcomes that they wanted delivered. And so the money had to be spent in certain ways to achieve those outcomes. And so the federal government, if they're transferring money, they might put those same kind of parameters on health care spending to ensure that the outcomes that they want to see uh, come true would actually come true as a result of them spending that money. So, I mean, ultimately, remember, every politician wants to go to the polls and say, I got this, or I did this, or I'm responsible for this positive thing in your life. And, and that might be ultimately the thing that, uh, you know, the Trudeau government might be looking for before giving Ontario or provinces any money. Uh, of course. And yet there is a real irony in this that somehow seems to get lost so often. And that is whether it's the federal government saying, well, look, we're bequeathing you this money or the provincial government saying we want whatever. Ultimately, all the money comes from the same place. It all comes from the taxpayers. So it, it, it seems like this is just the politicians playing their games where the taxpayers end up paying the bill anyway, no matter where it comes from. Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. I, I mean, to ask the provincial government to spend more money to kind of offset the lack of funding from the federal government is, you know, a, a fool's errand because ultimately, you know, it's still then on the taxpayer's dime here in Ontario. Um, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, whether it's municipal, federal or provincial, it's all the exact same taxpayer. So, uh, you know, when it comes to the spending, this is something that has been a perennial ask. It's been going on at least since Premier Doug Ford uh, was elected in 2018 that they've made this ask every single year and it hasn't really budged other than, you know, the, the annual increases that were set to go up anyway. So I'm not sure whether, you know, this current situation is going to be the situation that we're having in hospitals to solve the issue or whether this meeting will be the meeting that will solve the issue. But, uh, you know, Premier Ford will be pushing for the Canada health transfer and for increased control over immigration as well. And I suspect, and we got to go, but I suspect that any request in, in these kind of meetings, if Premier Ford is asking for X, Prime Minister Trudeau is going to be saying, fine, but you have to give us Y. This is never going to be just a give. This is always a give and take. Uh, yeah, politics is always a negotiation, right? It's always scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Um, and, and, you know, to be fair, the Ford government has been very flattering <laughs> when it comes to the Trudeau government. I mean, they work very well together, uh, so much so that people have questioned whether Premier Ford is, is a true conservative, as an example. So, uh, But ultimately, it comes down to some kind of a mutual agreement, a give and take. And, and that's what might be the thing that you know the Trudeau government is looking for in order to transfer more money to Ontario. Colin DeMello, Global Par Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Um, listen, your kids were fantastic. Perfect this morning. Give them a lollipop or something for their for their great work this morning. Excellent job, Colin. Thank you so much for this. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We are very blessed in this country when you think of some of the people who are familiar to us. Terry Fox, obviously. Rick Hansen. Even Steve Fonio, despite some of the problems that he had. People, These are all people who have 
Well, their, their stories are somewhat similar in that they've traveled across the country or even in Rick Hansen's case around the world uh, to raise awareness and money for illnesses, for causes. Uh, and again, lots of countries have people who do this. Ours here for some reason, which is good, we really notice and we really latch onto this. Well, there's another story that falls into this same category that has just wrapped up. A guy by the name of Adam Hurt from Waterford. He's a high school teacher. He just rode his bike all the way across the country, took it in two different portions. We'll explain why in a second. Uh, but he had a cause that he was raising awareness and money for as well. Uh, and he joins us now. Adam, how are you this morning? I'm doing well, Scott. Thanks so much for having me on this morning. Oh, you're very welcome. We're glad you could do this. Uh, how are the legs, by the way? Uh, they're feeling pretty strong. I'm, uh, I've been <laughs> able to enjoy a, a few days rest. Uh, so, uh, you know, thankful for that. Thankful to have a time out of the saddle for, for the first time in a while. But uh, no, they're feeling pretty strong. So you decided that you were going to ride across the country, um, and it was because of uh, uh, something called, and I'm going to probably mangle, well, why don't you say it rather than me having to try it 12 times to say it and just wasting time? What was the, what was the illness that you were trying to raise awareness for? You got it, uh, Scott. It's uh, ARVC is the, the way we like to shorten it to keep things simple, uh, which stands for arrhythmogenic right ventricular cardiomyopathy. Which means what? Uh, so ARVC is a is an inherited condition of the heart um, that uh, has to do with the the gene responsible for building the muscle protein of the heart uh, over time. For people that have um, a defect in the gene, uh, it actually turns the the heart muscle into fatty tissue, um, oh. which which uh, unfortunately doesn't allow. Uh, appropriate electrical signals to to pass through the heart and uh, symptoms include uh, a very often unfortunately um, the very first symptom is is often uh, sudden cardiac arrest and, and it's often in young otherwise uh, healthy people and and very few people I think would know about this or probably even have heard about this you have though this has hit you very close to home it, it sure has, Scott, and uh, and just I, I'll preface kind of my, my my quick discussion on that with everybody's heard of the hockey player, the soccer player, uh, etc. That is, you know, young um, in their teens or in their twenties, thirties, maybe uh, that have dropped from sudden cardiac arrest, often without uh, you know real explanation. It's not always ARVC, but but it, it we're finding out that it actually quite often is. Hmm. Uh, very unfortunately, in 2001, we lost my wife, uh, Jackie, at the age of 31 uh, with wow. very little warning. And uh, am I, currently, my 24-year-old son, Greg, uh, has, has experienced five sudden cardiac arrests because of this and uh, as a result is, is quite uh, disabled. So you decided to raise awareness for this, which are uh, very understandable and laudable that you would do this, uh, and you decided to ride across the country. I, I'm guessing, you know, some of that, again, in this country, we know about people who have done this. It is a, it is a way to certainly get attention. Was your intention to do it all in one shot? It sure was, uh, Scott. Uh, the intention uh, in 2021, I, I had a plan um, when Greg got sick most recently in 2020, uh, I worked towards uh, prepping to go coast to coast in 2021. Uh, by the time it made sense uh, with with this thing uh, that we now know is COVID, um, 
by the time it made sense to to start pedaling, it was rather late in the season. And I didn't really want to be pedaling across uh, Canada in November and December. So we chose to do the East Coast uh, last fall, last September. And uh, I just completed the uh, the Western 60% of the journey across the country. So you went East Coast to Waterloo, correct, last fall. And then you went West Coast to Waterford, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's okay. right. So you've done it now and what, um, so having now pedaled across Canada, which I can pretty much assure you as few people as were aware of this illness, even fewer will ever do, way fewer will ever do what you just did. Um, what's the experience like in riding a bike all the way across the country? Uh, it was absolutely incredible. Um, obviously, you know, tired, tough days, uh, many days, but the, uh, the positives far outweighed uh, the challenges for me, uh, both physically, mentally, and emotionally while I was on the bike. Just the, the beauty of the country, of course. One of the, I think one of the reasons why it is such kind of an epic thing is obviously the size of this country. So, you know, over the two, uh, two sections, I, I completed over 9,100 kilometers on my bike. And just the beauty of the, the landscape and the people far outweighed any of the challenges that I experienced on a day-to-day basis. Uh, you are looking, we've got to run, but you are looking to raise money as well as awareness. Uh, the foundation of, I got the right website here, arvcfamilysupport.org. That's right. It's a, it's a website that my family and I started, uh, last year and this bike ride was a launch to it. And we're, we've connected with dozens of families across the country already helping, uh, people find answers and guide them through a system when, uh, their, uh, loved ones are diagnosed with this condition. It is, uh, it is great of you to do this. It's, uh, it's a fantastic thing that you were able to do this. Adam Hurt, uh, really appreciate you taking some time today. Thanks. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That is a show that was starring Eugene Morris Orowitz. Well, kind of. That was his original name. Michael Landon was the guy who, that little house on the prairie. Yes, little house in the prairie. Uh, my next guest is, well, he's going back into the vault. I did not realize the amazing podcast that my next guest has out. I have now. And on that podcast, which I will be spending an awful lot of time in over the next few days, now that I have discovered it, silly me for not knowing it before, uh, he has now released an interview from the vault with... Michael Landon, who died 31 years ago. Uh, the interviewer who's joining us now, Bill Briu from Briu TV. Bill, how are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thanks for having me. How did you not tell me before this that you had this amazing podcast with all this stuff <laughs> on it? I, 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 I don't know. I've been missing out. It's clear I've been missing out. Well, I'm glad you discovered it now. Welcome aboard. There's about 80 episodes up, so uh, it's something I really enjoy talking to a lot of folks about. And uh, these last few episodes this summer, I've done, went into the vault, as we say, really a, a bunch of boxes in my basement full of old cassette tapes from the interviews I did years ago when I worked at TV Guide uh, magazine. And um, this was one of them that was very memorable and uh, just a, a crazy story about how this came to uh, happen. Before we get to that story, and I want to hear it, what's amazing. So the, earlier this summer, earlier this month, you posted one with George Burns. Uh, you also posted one with Steve Allen and Jack Parr, the original hosts of The Tonight Show. Now you've done Michael Landon. Before we get into that, I got to tell you, the thing that is most stunning to me about this, when you look at the lengths of this, today, there is no chance 
that you would get 40 minutes with George Burns or an <laughs> hour know. with Steve Allen and Jack Parr or an hour with Michael Landon. That doesn't happen anymore. These are long, in-depth discussions. Yeah, you're right. It was a different era. It was, uh, you know, 1991, this interview, the George Burns one, I think, goes back to 85. Uh, Five or 89, I think. He was about to turn 90, and he still had an office in uh, Los Angeles at a movie studio when I interviewed him. And uh, it was just incredible to be able to talk to somebody about not only George Burns' career and Gracie Allen, his partner, but to ask him about the Marx Brothers or, you know, like firsthand stories about just all yeah. these comedy legends. So that was pretty cool. So tell me the story of Michael Landon and why now, why today you're posting this one. Well, this just was a very memorable interview, um, first of all, because it was Michael Landon. And as as you'll hear on the podcast, it's at brio.tv, the podcast. Um, he uh, he did give me a, a lot of time, and we, I went to his office. He was in Culver City. He was working on a new series. Landon may be the only guy to have three hit series back-to-back, -back, Bonanza, a little house on the prairie and highway to heaven. And he was working on a fourth one called us or us. Um, and it was about a guy just out of prison who starts traveling in a Winnebago with his father and his 18 year old son. And, uh, so that was the opportunity to talk to him. I, I used to be a photo editor at TV guide. So I knew a photographer by the name of Gene Trindle who shot all of Landon's shows. And he knew Harry Flynn, who was Landon's manager press agent and that's how i was able to get the interview and it was just unusual to talk to landon before his series hit the air so i got the jump on everybody i just happened to be in la i was doing some other interviews at the time but i just lucked out into a, a good day where i had him all of that time you you point out that he was maybe the only guy to have these three series back to back on your website though you do say there is an article that you've posted asking whether Ted Danson is TV's greatest of all time because of the series he's had with Cheers and with whatever. He, how does Michael, if, if you had to put Michael Landon in one corner and Ted Danson in the other as TV's greatest, who wins that battle? Well, that's a really interesting question. I, I, I think that story was sort of tabulating on number of episodes. So, uh, land, you know, for dramatic scripted episodes, guys like Johnny Carson and Regis Philbin were on longer. Sure. Uh, in total hours. But in terms of written episodes, Landon's up near 700. Danson's just over 700. And that's sort of how we came to that score. But uh, Landon was also, this is a great little bit of trivia. On the podcast, he talks about it. I said to Landon, why don't you ever play a bad guy? You know, he's always known as uh, you know, Highway to Heaven. He talks to God. You know, they used to joke that he was, his nickname was Jesus of Malibu, uh, uh, you know, Landon. But <laughs> Basically, he said people wouldn't buy it. They wouldn't take me because he was up for the role of there was a movie called Something About Amelia way back 30, 40 years ago where uh, about a child molester and he turned it down and Ted Danson got the role and I think got an of Emmy course. nomination because of it. Yeah, speaking of Ted Danson, it, it is it is amazing though with when you're talking about Michael Landon and those three series one after the other that worked because I I mean think back over recent years just even in the 10 15 20 years the biggest series that were out there I mean Seinfeld Friends I don't know what else you want to put in there how many very few very few of the actors who were in those despite the fact that they were the biggest most famous people very few spun off or not even spun off very few went into other series where they were very successful 
It's, I mean, Kelsey Grammer, but that was well, the same character. Kelsey Grammer is a good example. Like he played that character for 20 years on Cheers and Frasier. But since Frasier, he's had four or five flops. You know, like it's that third one. Even Bob Newhart went from Newhart to the Bob Newhart show. And then three or four shows that never really caught on. But they were all essentially the same character. Here you're talking about a guy playing three completely different. I mean, they're similar, I suppose, but three different characters. It's so rare to be able to do that and not to have a bomb along the way, or or at least to be plausible enough that people will buy you in that role. Look, it's a miracle to get one hit on television. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's very hard. And I, I asked Landon about that. I said, why don't you ever wear out your welcome? And he was very modest. He said, look, we do a really good job. We have, he'd been with his cinematographer for 31 years. He, his crew, he said they were the best in the business. They, they provided pretty pictures for people who wanted to escape. And uh, it, a well-made show and good stories, he said. You know, he wasn't giving himself any credit. I just think he was somebody that people uh, welcomed into their house all the time. Well, that and, um, you know, something that, uh, that I don't have, and maybe, you know, it, it would help all of us. A magnificent, majestic, luxurious head of hair is always going to help someone. <laughs> it did have that. That's for sure. And it looked even better standing next to Haas on Bonanza, uh, you know, uh, but, uh, he had some great stories. He joked, he joked about Lauren Green. Uh, who was, of course, Canadian, and he was Paul yes. Cartwright on Bonanza. That series was on over 13 years. And he just said when they went to start, when they were launching and they were all meeting for the first time, he said, after listening to Lauren Green, I thought he was like a Canadian Mountie or something. He was t- went on and on about his horsemanship. He said every time he came off the saddle, he could shoot the bad guys between Lauren Green and the saddle. There was so much speed. <laughs> so he was, yeah, he was could... very funny on the interview. If Lauren Green's ankles were touching, you could shoot a cannonball between his legs. That's right. Uh, you can find the uh, this in the podcast, Briu TV, the podcast. Uh, go online. You can find it there. Michael Lannon, Steve Allen, Jack Parr, George Burns, tons of others. As you say, as Bill says, 80 different uh, TV people from the present of the past. Bill, really appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure, Scott. And just to say, I mean, uh, the, the, the thing is that Landon died just minutes after, like uh, two weeks after uh, he found out he had this terrible diagnosis for cancer. So that's certainly factors into the uh, listening to this interview. Absolutely. It is an amazing, as I say, it's an amazing series of podcasts that uh, I have now stumbled on. And uh, I would tell people if you're into TV, if you're into entertainment, uh, it's a good place to start looking. Briu TV, go, uh, go look there. Bill, thanks for this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Really interesting news yesterday and a little bit of history here in Hamilton when the Hamilton Bulldogs decided to become the first team in Ontario Hockey League history to hire a woman as an assistant coach, Laura Fortino. Everybody around here knows Laura from her time in the Olympics. Assist on the golden goal to Marie-Philippe Poulain in um, Sochi been around for a long, long time. She was chosen. She was hired by the team. She will be on the bench. She will be involved in player development. Um, it's a first. The guy who made the hire, the guy who decided to do this is the president and general manager of the team. His name is Steve Stales. He joins us now. Steve, how are you this morning? Good morning, Scott. How are you? I'm doing okay. Uh, tell me, this is, um, this is something new. Anytime there's something new, uh, there must be some thought about whether this is going to work or why this hasn't been done before. Uh, what was the thought process for you when you sat down and thought about hiring Laura? Yeah, you know, well, it's been over a couple of years. So Laura has been 
in and around our team at development camps, training camps, uh, you know, guest coaching, and, uh, you know, really show, showed a passion for it. And my job is to identify talents in all areas. And uh, um, it became quite ev- evident to me that Laura has this runway as a coach and the passion for it. Now, she's continued to develop, um, you know, she did some skill development this off season. Um, started to grow in confidence that way as well. Like like every progression, uh, you know, as as a coach or in skill development. So you know, it, we've always been fond of having Laura around and her insight at training camps. And this is sort of kind of taking it, you know, taking it to the next step. And uh, we have always been open to having a skill development person around. Um, and uh, Laura continued to just kind of rise and. I just identified it. We identified it as she has a runway as a coach and has the passion for it. So that's really how we sort of came to it. But it wasn't like something we decided. And further to that, if I could say, and I hope this comes off okay, but the fact that Laura is a female um, is great. And, but this is all on on merit. You know, her playing experience, her passion for the game, her character, her work ethic, all the, the attributes that we really covet in Hamilton. Because you know... I, I know I've known Laura since she was a kid. You've known Laura for a long time. We know what she's all about, but not everybody does. And you know that's going to be one of the comments: is oh, you're looking to get a little publicity, so you're hiring a woman. You know that's going to come. I, I mean, I, I I know it's it's come now, but it really you know I didn't give that much thought to be quite honest. Like it takes, as you know, Scott. You know, Laura, spend two minutes with her, uh, start talking hockey, and uh, she's dynamic and passionate and great energy and uh you know she she fits to what we like to do here with the bulldogs and uh you know so i i guess i probably didn't give it enough thought i knew it was going to have a positive impact um you know i think there's a generation of of female athletes that uh you know maybe wonder what they're going to do post playing or you know young young girls who are aspiring to to be coaches and managers and I think that that's that's great, uh, and I'm I'm glad that we could do that. But that certainly wasn't the goal with this. Laura, you know, just sort of you know continued to impress us as a staff, and you know, in just having a, the discussion with Jay and and Andreas and Andrew Campbell about this, and they were you know all on board right away. It took it yeah. didn't take uh, a lot of discussion to uh, you know to decide to bring Laura on board. That is Steve Steos, uh, General Manager and President of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Steve, really appreciate it today. Thanks for jumping in. All right, Scott. Have a great day. Uh, and for the record, I think Laura will be excellent at this. I think she's got the smarts and the ability and everything else. I think she's uh, she's going to be terrific. As I say, I've known her forever, so it's uh, she's going to be good. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. At the Chateau Laurier for decades has hung a portrait, a photographic portrait, a picture, not a, a painting. A, 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 it was taken by famed photographer Karsh, who was living at the Chateau Laurier for many years. Anyway, in 1941, Winston Churchill was visiting Parliament Hill to deliver a speech about the threat of Nazism that was now looming over Europe. And Karsh sat him down and took this portrait, a photo. It became known as the Roaring Lion. It was, it was well, you've seen the photo. I guarantee you've seen the image of it. Maybe not the actual photo from the Chateau Laurier, but you've seen the image of this. It, it shows Winston Churchill looking, well, I think the title is probably pretty 
fair, the roaring lion. He, he, in this photo looks like a man who is staring down an existential threat to his country and to the world. He looks like a man in, well, go look it up if you, if you need a description. Anyway, this photo that has hung in Chateau Laurier for, as I say, since the 1940s, they discovered several weeks ago, or recently, I guess, more recently, that, that sometime in the last number of weeks was stolen and replaced by a fake, replaced by a print. Although this is where this story, to me, begins to get a little complicated because a photo, by definition, is a print, and so if you replace a print with a print, it's not quite the same, it, is it, as replace, as stealing a piece of art. If you steal a, if you were to steal a original group of seven, like you can go out and buy a print of a Tom Thompson painting, probably get it for 50 bucks or less somewhere, a, you know, a proper, nicely done print of A.Y. Jackson or Tom Thompson or whomever. That's very different, obviously, than the hand-painted original oil or watercolor. But this is a photo that is a print to begin with. It's, it's a really complicated story. I want to bring in Christopher A. Marinello, who is a founder of Art Recovery International, who joins us. Uh, thank you for the time today. I really appreciate this. Sure, my pleasure. <clears throat> so just before we get into that question I was just asking, as you heard this story, did it did you wonder how in the world somebody could steal this p photo from plain view when apparently it was locked down or reasonably well secured? How could this even happen? Well, if you told me that this was a museum or a art gallery, uh, I would be surprised. The fact that this is a hotel in the business of putting people up for the night, um, it's not that surprising. I've uh, I've been I've stayed at hotels where I've seen guests take artwork home with them. Really? Um, yeah, <laughs> people steal everything. I mean, it starts with shampoo and uh, <laughs> from the cart, and the next thing you know, they're taking the artwork home. Um, but, but you know, I could see somebody sitting in the lounge having a few martinis. You know, a, maybe a repeat customer looking at this piece and saying, "Oh, let me look at the look into this and check out what this might be worth." I kind of like it, and and um, you know, seeing that it, it, you know, wasn't too difficult to find out what this thing is, is valued at, and, and decide to develop a plan when no one was around and take it home. And they would have to have done what you described, right? Because the average person walking by a photo would never think, oh, that photo must be worth a fortune because a photo by definition is already a print of the original image. So it's, it's, it's a little different than a piece of artwork that someone has painted by hand, isn't it? That's right. Somebody had to inspect this, see that it was signed, possibly see that it was an inscription, know a little bit about the history. I mean, that's why, you know, it, it's also not impossible that this was an inside job. Somebody who knew about the collection, knew about the other artworks, the other uh, Karsh photographs that were in, in the, uh, in the, on display and decided to just do a little bit of research. And, and, you know, it, within five minutes, you could see that uh, in New York two years ago, a similar 
photograph without the provenance of this one sold for 81,000 Canadian. Mm. And this one is much more important because Karsh was a resident of the hotel, gave this as a gift to the hotel, signed it. So you could easily see how this could be worth over 100,000 Canadian. Except for one thing, and this is this is the part about art theft, and you, you can answer this, because this is the part about art theft that always baffles me. And you could say the same about, you know, if you stole a very valuable piece of sports memorabilia or something else. Having it in your possession is one thing. Stealing it is one thing. A lot of people could get this home if they really put their mind to it. But when everybody knows it's stolen, how can you possibly sell it? Who's going to buy it if you know that you can't display it because it's stolen? That's right. That's where Hollywood's version of art thieves and reality uh, take different course. Uh, it's, if you're an art thief, you're not too bright. If you, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, but they give uh, Hollywood gives art thieves far too much credit. I mean, if they if they were intelligent, they'd have proper jobs. Instead, they're stealing for a living and they don't think about how difficult it's going to be to unload the piece. And they're willing to take anything for it after that. You know, sometimes criminals hope that they will get you, that an insurance company will come in and they will offer a reward uh, or they will try to ransom the piece back. And when they find it more difficult to sell than they thought, especially with the proliferation of the Internet, something stolen in Canada, uh, you know, within 24 hours, the news is across the world. That never used to be the case, but it is now. And uh, next thing you know, you have these illicit objects uh, being swapped for drugs, weapons, uh, you know, offered on the dark web. It becomes more difficult to to sell it, absolutely. And we got to run, but are there people even quote, quote, legitimate people who would still buy something like this, even if they had some suspicions, or is this always going to end up in some dark place? Well, there are a, a lot of people uh, that will look the other way, that don't want to know where something came from, and they won't do any due diligence before plucking down a lot of money to buy something like this. And if you do that, you take a, a huge risk, risk of losing everything, because you're not going to get your money back. It could be seized. And you could get be imprisoned, uh, charged with uh, handling stolen property. It depends on the jurisdiction. But it's simply not worth taking the chance. But you will find people looking the other way or not asking the right questions. There's, there's no money-back guarantee on art theft? I, I'm shocked. Oh, no. <laughs> not at all. There is a, there is a, a, a rather difficult jurisdiction in Canada, uh, Quebec province, that... Uh, has more lax laws with respect to art theft and recovery. But as far as the rest of Canada and, and most common law countries, it, it's you can't get good title mm. through the chain of the thief. Christopher Marinello, founder of Art Recovery International. Very much appreciate the time today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.